and good morning. And a special good morning to those of you who are watching online. We bless God that you're able to follow us uh, in this way. Here in front, we are in the third Sunday of Lent. It's a tradition of the church that goes back almost 1,500 years of remembering and recognizing and preparing ourselves for the celebration of Resurrection Day as we remember the suffering and pain of Christ on our behalf. The tradition here of the candles is that uh, each of the purple candles represents one of the Sundays prior to Resurrection Day and then the Resurrection Day candle. And with each Sunday, each candle, uh, one more candle is extinguished as a symbol of the burden that Christ endured as he realized the closer that Calvary was coming, where he endured not only the physical suffering, but the emotional and spiritual suffering of hell on the cross for us. Our scripture memory for this month of March are a couple of verses in Psalm 110, verses 2 and 4. And we're going to be saying these together in just a moment. And then following that, I will be reading our next passage, which is Hebrews chapter 6. We're almost halfway through. And we started in January, so we're almost halfway through. Uh, I'll be reading some verses, selected verses from Hebrews chapter 6. But we're going to begin by reciting together these two verses of Psalm 110. So I invite you to join with me by standing either physically or in your heart before God as we say together these words from the book that we love. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And now these words from Hebrews 6. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age and have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God had wanted to make 
the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he has was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God's very words. Thanks be to God. And you may be seated. It was a typical morning, as most mornings are. Renee was off early to childcare, and I was on my computer writing emails and waking people up who still had their phone on beside their bed. But I noticed about uh, 9 o'clock that things with my phone weren't going quite right. Uh, people weren't responding to me who usually would have responded to me. And uh, I was assuming that I had done something wrong, as usual. I probably pushed a button, set something up so that uh, I had done something wrong on my phone. And so it was 9 o'clock, and so the AT&T store opened at 10. I was going to go there and have them help me. So I arrived there about uh, 9.50, got out of the car, got by the door. Quickly, five people stood behind me. Quickly, 10 people, and then 15. And as we talked amongst ourselves for those few minutes, we quickly discerned that AT&T had the problem. And it wasn't anything that we had done. And by the time the fellow who inside opened the door at 10 o'clock, all 20 plus of us made our way inside the store. And he was just overwhelmed and said, I'm the only one here, I can't help you all. And so we had to tell him what was going on. AT&T had the problem. Of course, your boss couldn't have let you know that because your phone's not working. And he said, but I have Verizon. <laughs> And the joke started about loyalty, dependability, reliability, about going to the Verizon store across the street. Well, I came and heard what I wanted to hear, and I left. But that Verizon thing still makes me chuckle. Jesus never goes offline. Fully dependable, fully reliable we can have confidence that he holds strong like an anchor, regardless of our circumstances. He is solid and stable. On him, we have placed our anchor no matter what happens. So we're going to reflect a bit on Hebrews chapter 6 and then look again at several more snapshots. Now, I came up with, very quickly, as I made my way through, I came up with 13 snapshots. But we're only going to look at eight of them. But first, Hebrews chapter 6. It begins with some warnings. The writer talks about warnings that pull people away from Jesus. This year, with how weird the weather has been, 
there was an interview I saw a month or two ago about a woman from Vermont, and this is a picture of the flooding in Vermont. Uh, an interview with her, as the waters were rising, someone came to knock on her door to tell her that the waters are rising and you need to leave. And she said that she struggled and she did not appreciate that. But uh, and first she was angry with the people. But now, at the interview, she was full of gratitude because their warning saved her life. Warnings can be a blessing. Warnings are not always happy news to receive. But the promise of safety is. Part of the warning that was going on is that the Jewish Christians were under an increased persecution from Rome. And there were a whole bunch of Jewish Christians who were contemplating and actually were doing it. They were abandoning the faith and some were going back to Judaism and practicing faith there without Jesus in it. They were experiencing great losses in a life because of persecution. And when losses come, we have a tendency to question, even in our day, losses of marriage, of job, of income, of health, and we can make a long list. Losses make us raise the question, do we press on with Christ or not? And the readers, they must have been wondering, why didn't Jesus stop the persecution? Why is he allowing this to go on since he has the capability and the love to be able to stop it? And so we get Hebrews 6, a troublesome passage, a passage where some people say it's the passage where angels fear to tread. In this intense persecution that the Jewish Christians were facing, their question is, what do we do? because many had left. And it seems to indicate that once you leave the faith, you are not allowed to enter back in. That could be an interpretation from the reading here. Now, in our Reformed tradition, we hold. God holds us, and he never lets us go. When, by grace, we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. God is our anchor, regardless and as feeble as we are. Now, when we get a passage like this, one of the things we do is we place it in the context of all of the Bible. Well, what does all the Bible have to say about this? Well, all of the Bible says something very different. It says that once Father God holds us, he never lets us go. Such as in these words, from John 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. These verses can be troubling Wait, there's two things that I find comfort where I, can, for, where I can place this verse in the context of our Reformed faith. First of all, uh, the book of Hebrews is the hardest book 
to translate out of Greek. Now, you might say, what, what kind of deal is that? Uh, but if you've ever read Shakespeare and tried to understand Shakespeare, it can take some interpretation. One of our favorite shows on PBS is called The Midwives. And my favorite character is the retired nun, Sister Monica Joan. And she talks of a very high English, a very high English. And so when we listen to her talk, it's like, okay, let's stop it, let's rewind it, let's put on the closed caption, <laughs> let's try to understand what she's saying. She's using a very high English that sometimes can be taken a couple different ways. And so because of that, people give it different interpretations. In fact, if you were to go to the NIV Study Bible, which is a, a pretty solid interpretation of Scripture, it will give you three different understandings of verses 4, 5, and 6. And not everyone is that you will lose your salvation. I really like the way, secondly, how Eugene Peterson does it in his paraphrase, The Message. The thing about Peterson is, what people don't always understand in The Message, is that they think he paraphrased it out of the English, and he didn't. He paraphrased the message, the Old Testament out of the Hebrew, and the New Testament out of the Greek. He went to the original sources. And so he would write that if people didn't like some of his paraphrasing, well, they should take three years of Greek first, and then he'll have a conversation with them. He puts it something like this. For those who have left the faith and left the church can't think that they can just waltz right back in and pick up where things were before. Things have to be taken care of. Business with God, business with the church, the community, like Peter did on the beach with Jesus. The whole of Scripture talks about the perseverance of the saints. And we view these verses as a warning. Not to let anything turn you aside or think about abandoning him. In fact, it is a call to go deeper. And though this is tough stuff, I put together uh, four summary statements that I think capture what the writer has to say. The warning that he wants to give of don't go away like this in our journey we have choices maybe one of these four ways will speak to you either pursue Jesus or turn from him either fixate on Jesus or fall away from him either savor Jesus or shame him or either more of Jesus or disaster The writer is saying we have the choice and the encouragement to follow him no matter what. And this is why we need to keep stirring each other up. This is why we need to join together whenever the sisters and brothers get together to worship God, yes, but also to encourage each other. Because if we're not encouraging each other when we get together and meet, then what are we here for? because the dangers are out there and the warnings come. Don't turn away. Don't turn back. He's the anchor. He holds 
us firm. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of our lives. We don't need to find that anywhere else. And so now, here, in the context of that, of Hebrews 6, we're going to be looking at the snapshots. Some are probably familiar, and some are probably new. But here we go. First snapshot. Jesus is the goal of our growth. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. He's saying, you have the building blocks. Now build on them and become mature in your faith and grow. He is the object of our growth. And first, in Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle says, I strive to present everyone mature and complete in Christ. After all, isn't that true? When someone that we know grows in their understanding and walk with Jesus, what greater joy is there? He is the goal of our growth. He is the daylight of our darkness for those who have once been enlightened. Jesus comes to bring enlightenment. Jesus met Saul on the Damascus Road, and he said this, My assignment for you is to preach Christ throughout the Roman Empire, turning people from darkness to light. In fact, that word enlightenment is more than simply giving us light. It is about being blinded by the light. As we encounter Jesus over and again, as he reveals himself more and more, it is often as if we are coming and seeing things about him for the very first time. And it can startle us. If you have the Lectio 365 on your app, and if you were listening to it this week, on Friday, as the app was talking about uh, Israel getting ready to go into the promised land, but they were scared to because there were giants in the land. One of the things that caught Renee and I that, that we'd said we, we'd never heard before was that the people, as they were afraid of the giants in the land, they said, God must hate us. Did they really say that? Yeah, that's what they really said. The circumstances seemed too big, and they concluded, God must hate us. And it just made me think, do people really think that when they have difficult times? I need to be aware of that so I can be able to minister and care and tell them it's not true. It's not true. He is the daylight to all darkness. He is heaven's greatest gift. For those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Now, it uses that word tasted twice, which means that should grab our attention, right? When a word is used more than once in a short period of time. It's the same word that's used in chapter 2, where it says Jesus tasted death. That word means more than a sampling, like an uh, appetizer, but to fully devour, to have a rich experience of Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we need to take him all in and fully devour him. For God so loved the world, 
He wanted to give the best gift possible. So the gift would be clear to all, and it would be his son. There is no greater gift than that. When you give a gift, don't you often want to give a gift that knocks someone over? Jesus is that gift, heaven's greatest gift. Jesus is the focus of the Holy Spirit's work. For those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. To share means to come into intimacy together. We have come into intimacy with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's work is to help to bring the people of God into intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says in John 16, that the Holy Spirit is not about speaking about himself, but he speaks about Jesus to bring his followers into deeper intimacy with him. And the apostle prays in Ephesians 3 that for Christians, that God would strengthen them by his spirit. So that when we welcome the spirit into our midst in the work of the spirit, Jesus is right there, right in the middle of it. He is the focus of the spirit's work. Who is Jesus? He is the goodness of God. We who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. When refugees first fled Ukraine into Poland, one announcer said that the people of Poland were opening up their homes to the refugees. It's been two years now. And many of those Polish people still have Ukrainians in their homes to show they have not only opened up their homes, they've opened up their hearts. They have made a decision, a decision that love will prevail. And so it is with God. God opened up his vast goodness so that we would go after it and we could experience it and never feel like we've outstayed our welcome. We come in. Another snapshot of Jesus is that he is the city of refuge. God did this so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. What this verse is talking about is finding a place to hide, finding a place to find refuge. And commentators on this are saying that word fled is pointing back to the Old Testament. And you might remember there's something in the Old Testament called cities of refuge. Does that ring a bell? God established when Israel went into the promised land that there would be cities of refuge. Well, what is that? It's in Numbers 25. If someone is coming after you, most likely because of something that you have done, you can go to this city and they can't touch you. What this does, it allows passions to subside, cooler heads to prevail, and for justice, as time permits, to find its home. So someone doesn't act and respond rashly 
You can go to a city of refuge and know that you are protected and give it time for things to get sorted out. It's called a city of refuge. In fact, it says if you want to, in Numbers 25, you can stay there. You can put your roots down in a city of refuge and allow that city to be your home. And that's how it is with Jesus. When we find refuge in him and we've decided to come within his walls of protection, we can say we are going to live in Christ and in Christ alone. It's as if the writer of Hebrews is saying, you may be severely persecuted, you may even end up in a Roman Colosseum, but through it all, no one can touch you. No one can touch your eternal soul. He is the city of refuge. He is the expert of reconnaissance. It uses the word forerunner. It's really a military word. It's a military word about a scout that goes out ahead of the army to do reconnaissance. We don't have those kind of scouts today because we have drones. We have satellites. But back, especially in the Civil War, they had scouts who would precede the army to let the army know where the enemy is. So they would go prepared into battle. Humans, as we look at the landscape, we see giants in the land. We say we're going to get sworn, we can't go in. When, when human scouts go out, they look at all the challenges that are out there and they say they cannot be overcome, no matter what God says. Jesus is the expert at this. He knows where the enemy is. He shows us where it's safe to go. And he shows us how to be victorious. So follow him. He's the expert. Then lastly, for this morning, he is the anchor of hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Every ship needs an anchor, especially in a storm, to keep the ship in place until the storm passes. These people that the writer is sending this letter to are in a storm. He's letting them know their anchor holds and it's hooked in place. The anchor is the Son of God and the church is chained to him. One of the interesting things about this anchor that's different than a ship anchor, a ship anchor goes down. This anchor goes up and it hooks its place into heaven and pulls us forward. I reflected on these words from Paul who talks about the anchor who pulls us forward. I press on to take hold of that to which Christ has taken hold of me. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on. Jesus does not only hold us strong in the present, but he pulls us into God's preferred future. He is that anchor. And so using the imagery out of Hebrews 6, 
as we come to Jesus, we find Jesus this fresh fall of rain. We can choose to receive him, to allow his rain to fall on us so that we can be like fertile ground. Or we can choose to reject him. And it says that we produce thorns and thistles and our ground is worthless. If we're ever spiritually like that woman in Vermont and someone comes knocking on our door to give us a warning, our prayer together is that we heed the warning and hold firmly to our anchor. So that's Hebrews chapter 6. And these have been our snapshots so far. Jesus is God's final word. He is the Son of the Father. He is the image of God's glory, the source of everything, the sustainer of everything, the heir of all things, the purifier of everything, supreme over everything, the fulfillment of everything. Jesus is the flesh of our flesh. He is the man of sorrows, the sympathizer-in-chief, the devourer of death, the disabler of the devil, the liberator of all fears, the sanctifier of the saints, the elder brother, the architect of salvation. Jesus is the apostle of our faith, the high priest of our faith, God's authorized agent, the greater Moses, the builder of the house, the master of the house, the land of promise, the word of God, the high priest of heaven. Jesus is the victor over temptation, the giver of grace and mercy, our helper. He represents humanity before God, chosen by God, perfectly obedient one, the source of salvation, the high priest like Melchizedek. He is the goal of our growth, the daylight of our darkness, the heaven's greatest gift, the focus of the spirit, the goodness of God, the city of refuge, the expert in reconnaissance, and the anchor of hope. That's our Jesus. And we're only up to chapter 6. And so this morning, he gives us another picture. The bread and the cup. To remind us the same thing as the anchor, that he holds us firm. That he did for us what we can't do for ourselves. Pay the debt of our sin and be able to be set free from that bondage and enter into the good land of God. The bread in the cup says he holds us. He never lets us go. He went to hell for us and came back victorious. And he did it for us so that we would experience his goodness and his faithfulness. Why would we ever think about bailing on him? A couple of weeks ago, in Electio 365, there was a story of the Apostle John's disciple, Polycarp, one of the leaders of the church. When he was about 80 years old, the persecution finally caught up to him and as a leader of the church, the Roman authorities demanded that he renounce his faith or be burned at the stake. And in essence, he said this, how can I deny the one who has been my anchor for over 80 years? 
May the same be said of us. And so as we come to the table, we pause to breathe in grace. Breathe in mercy. Breathe in God's goodness. To breathe out the fear, the anxiety, and the worry. And the bread and the cup remind us of why that's possible. And so we pause before we taste to remember what Jesus has done for us and who he is. As we see in Hebrews, he is so many things. We acknowledge that the Old Testament is filled with pictures and stories of what Jesus would do. That he is the eternal and only begotten Son of God. And he took on a human nature and fulfilled all obedience and righteousness of God. And when we come to the bread and the cup, we remember that Jesus set us free from our sins. He broke the chains so that we would no longer be condemned to eternal death, but that we would be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. He was a curse that we would be a blessing. He was humbled so that we might be called the children of God. We acknowledge that it is his perfect sacrifice and his sacrifice alone that has saved us. His death has taken away all of our sin, the sin of our soul, the sin of our feet, and he has given to us the life-giving spirit, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in all of us who believe in Jesus. So I invite you to join with me in a moment of prayer. Father God, how we bless you and we thank you for your son Jesus, for all who he is and what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us. We think especially of what he has done for us on the cross, that he endured your wrath that was destined for us and he took it upon himself we bless you and we thank you so father god we pray that your bread and your cup will strengthen our heart and our faith help us to find be reminded of security in you that you will never let us go and that you hold us firm as best we know how, we offer ourselves to you. Thank you for your gift for us. In Jesus' name, amen.